Thank you, Libby, and good afternoon again. My name is Ian. I'm one of the leaders here at the church, and it's my privilege to open the Bible for us this afternoon. Uh, you've probably not heard of this guy. I hadn't until uh, I was doing some research. Herbert Casson. Anyone heard of Herbert Casson? Herbert Casson. Highly prophetic. Pro- uh, he wrote a lot of books. Uh, and he had a career as a guru in management for four decades. Uh, very acute observer of the world around him. I developed a philosophy of management, apparently, based around efficiency, and this is what he said in one of his pieces. The average man takes life as a trouble. He is in a chronic state of irritation at the whole performance. He does not learn to differentiate between troubles and difficulties, usually until some real trouble bowls him over. He fusses about pinpricks until a mule kicks in. And then he learns the difference. I'm sure some of you can relate to that quote. I'm pretty sure David uh, could have related to it from our reading today. Um, But I think that was only half of David's experience. I'm going to look at both halves today. So this afternoon we're picking up on the story in 1 Samuel that we've been in for some time now. Just as a bit of a, a recap, we've been thinking about the life of a man called David. David lived about 3,000 years ago, and he started out his life as a shepherd boy, a simple guy out in the fields looking after the sheep. But he was to become one of Israel's greatest kings. And to go from one to the other, God molded him and changed him through a set of experiences. And uh, we can read about those in the Bible, and we've been thinking about those and how we can apply them into our own lives. Uh, And we're picking up the story here at a time when uh, David has been on the run now from the current king of Israel, King Saul, for some time. And he's taken refuge with Israel's enemies. I was going to say traditional enemies, but enemies, the Philistines. And David has been able to persuade the king of the Philistines that he and his men are now on his side. That they now can be trusted as part of the Philistine military machine. Uh, So much has David been able to convince him. In actual fact, in the previous chapter we saw last week, how how the Philistine king said, okay, well, I trust you totally. You come and attack Israel with us. And so David's in a quandary, you know, do I attack my own people? Do I attack the Philistines and then I'm this big traitor? And God is able to uh, preserve him through this, this compromise that he made by actually stirring up the hearts of the other Philistine military leaders to say, you know what, attacking Israel with a group of Israelites in our own army is a really bad idea. You lot, go home. Uh, And so that's where we pick up the story today, at the beginning of chapter 13. You might want to keep that open so you can just refer to it when we we get there. Uh, So David and his men go back to Ziklag. This is their base that they've been operating from. They've had this this lucky escape where uh, they they were expected to attack Israel and and they got sent home. Uh, David and his men, they take three days to get back. But when they get back... They are in what we might call, if we're going to move this on, Jai might just move that on for me up there, what we might call outrageous fortune. Familiar with that line from Hamlet? I never read 
any Shakespeare at all at school. I don't know how I dodged it. But uh, there's this guy called Hamlet, and he complains about uh, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. This is what's going on here. Outrageous fortune. David and his men, they thought they've escaped this big problem, and they get back. The town is burnt down. Their families have been kidnapped and taken away, as well as all the herds and the plunder and the other stuff. It is all gone. To say that David is in distress is probably a huge understatement at this point. But he's got even more things to deal with. Because it's not just his family who's been kidnapped. It's not just his plunder who's been kidnapped. It's the stuff of all the 600 men who are following him as well. And they are, let's face it, understandably critical. That's, again, probably an understatement. David has taken them away up north to join the Philistine army. And while they're away, the Elimelechs have snuck in, burnt the place, and taken everybody's families and everybody's plunder and loot. And so they feel this is David's fault. And they're going to, or at least talking about, thinking about, stoning him. I think that's often, a, just as a side, I think it's often the case in, in our particular lives of Christians where you have this great experience with God and this, this, everything's going well and suddenly that's the time when we're most vulnerable and that's the time when this other thing comes along, this outrageous fortune, and gives us a good kicking. David must have hit rock bottom at this point. It's hard to imagine him being any lower So what does he do? What does he do when he's at rock bottom? He finds, it says there, he finds strength in his God. Notice there, his God. David has spent, as as Rob was talking about there, David spent quite a lot of time ignoring God for the last few chapters and now he turns to him for strength and notice he receives it. God gives him his strength. Not only does he look to him for strength, He looks for guidance. Again, that's something David hasn't done for a while. And again, he gets that from God. Very specifically, God says, go after them. You will catch them. You will beat them. And so not only does David turn to the Lord for strength and for guidance, but then he obeys him. Verse 9, they're off. They're off and running. They're running so fast, they've got to leave 200 guys behind because they can't keep up. That would be me, by the way. I'd be one of the guys at the back. Uh, you know, I'm built for comfort, not for speed these days. And so I would be with the 200. Um, and David, David is, 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 is blessed because he finds a slave who can give him some intelligence about where the Amalekites are. He gives them all the details. He tells them where they've been raiding. And he leads David and his men to where the Amalekites are. They're partying, they've got all this plunder, everything's good, right? David spends what sounds like nearly a whole day fighting them. There must have been quite a lot of them. Um, And as God told him, he recovers all the families. He's totally successful. He recovers everything. Everybody unharmed, all the plunder, everything. Now I've got to tell you, This is my kind of story. I am a sucker for a good story. I'm a sucker for a story where the good guy wins 
the bad guy loses, and people are rescued. It's great. But I want to suggest to you that there is more going on here than just a great story. So let's have a look at that. And the first thing I want to think about is when you hit rock bottom. There's an old saying, I don't know if you've heard it, but I think it's an important truth. When you hit rock bottom, look up. Uh, Now, to be clear, we should always be looking up in terms of looking to God. But for some reason, I don't know about you, but there's something in our human nature that means we often don't. And it's often only when we are absolutely on our knees, in the pit of despair, that we really feel the urge to look up. And so David, that seems to be the case with David here. Uh, He's been pursuing his own wisdom for a long time. It's been since about chapter 23, since he's sought out God's wisdom and guidance. Um, Certainly he's been relying on his own wisdom, that's why he's run off to the Philistines. That's why he's been lying to the Philistine king. Well, that's going to work out well somehow. Uh, that's how he's found himself in this, in this potential battle sandwiched between everybody. And yet only it's now, when he's come back, the base is destroyed, the families are kidnapped, the plunder is gone. Everybody's upset with him. That's when, first of all, he weeps. He weeps till he has no strength left. You all know the kind of thing he's going to be thinking at that point. Why me? Why me, God? I mean, I've tried my hardest. I've done what I thought was best. Maybe, maybe he's thinking, you really hate me, God, for doing this to me. Maybe he's thinking, are you there at all, God? Perhaps I'm the worst leader ever. I've let those down who've put their trust in me. I may never see my wives again. You, you probably won't be in a situation where you, you think to yourselves, I will never see my wives plural again. In that way, that's a bit of a, that's a, bit of a cultural thing that would be about then. Um, my enemy has totally triumphed over me. I cannot see a way out of this. And his men are feeling pretty much the same way and are very angry with him. They're thinking he's the one who has led them into disaster and they're right in, in many senses. David has compromised He's deserted his, God's people. He's relied on his own understanding. He's lost so much, he must be feeling... He must be feeling, I'm sure, like many of you have felt many times. David is in the pit of despair, rock bottom, call it what you want to. What is his response? Belatedly, far later than he should have done, he seeks comfort and refuge and strength from God who quickly gives it. The passage says that David found strength in the Lord, his God. God is often called the Lord God in the Bible, but but here I think there's an emphasis to say this is a very personal thing, a very intimate thing. He finds strength in his God. I, I don't often quote hymns in, in when we give messages, but I'm going to do one this time. Um, we sing it here occasionally. It's called He Giveth More Grace. Just want to read you uh, a verse out of this because this captures for me 
what God is doing for uh, David at this point. So listen to this. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, get this, our Father's full giving has only begun. His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. For me, that captures it. As Christians, we have staggering resources of strength and encouragement and patience and peace and, yes, even joy through Jesus and what he's done for us. No, it doesn't take away the pain. Often it would not lift us out of the pit, or at least not straight away, but it does allow us to survive there. It does strengthen us. It does comfort us. And hopefully it will motivate us and empower us to move out of that. And so uh, let's just look at this idea of being strengthened for a moment. Uh, We don't know practically how David was strengthened. Uh, God was interacting with his his chosen people at that time in a different way. Uh, But I want to suggest some ways to you in which he will strengthen us today in the 21st century. First of all, you know, uh, we have the Bible. We have the Bible for us. Most of that was not available to David at that time. In fact, he still had to write some of it. But in the Bible, there are huge sections to which people have turned to for comfort and strength and encouragement, and we can do that. For many of God's people have found strength and encouragement reading things like the Psalms. They're full of richness for folks who are in that situation. But he also encourages us and strengthens us through prayer. We have, as we were just doing a moment ago, the privilege of talking directly to God the Father, whether whether as we did as a group of people or whether we do it individually. When we pour out our adoration of God, when we express our thankfulness, confessing our sins, when we open our hearts to God, we may well experience that kind of strengthening and comfort and encouraging that David was, was experiencing there. Uh, God also sends us the Holy Spirit. We sang a moment ago how he's called the Comforter. Uh, through the Holy Spirit that, that Christians receive, we can indeed get a sense of God's comfort. Sometimes in a way that is startling and surprising. And also in the church we find brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters who love us who encourage us, who strengthen us, who lift us up. Yeah, sometimes kick our backsides when we need it. All to be used by God in a mighty way in our lives. In a way in which we can, perhaps as David, think about God as being God, my God, not just as being the Lord God. The Lord, your God. The Lord, my God. If you're in a situation like that today, perhaps you are. Substitute that phrase, the Lord, my God. And if, as you turn to some of these places, and some of you may, may indeed have already turned to them, we pray and trust that you will receive strength and encouragement from God. So that's it, right? 
you know, we've been comforted, strengthened. Great. Good. We can move on. We can just uh, move on from there. Uh, you know, David's received strength. And then what? He says, oh, well, that, that's good. We'll just uh, leave the wives where they are. That's okay. You know, it is what it is. Don't worry about it. Um, no, that is not the case. When David receives strength from the Lord, what we see happening is that we see that uh, his comfort actually goes through this process where it leads and ends up with action. David receives strength from the Lord. He recalls that relationship that he had with God. Perhaps realising at this point just how far away he had drifted. But also realising, like Rob was saying a moment ago, how faithful God has still been to him. We don't know all the emotions David is going through, but we do know what he did. He did not say, oh, well, that's the way it goes. He didn't say, okay, I've been strengthened and encouraged. Well, I'll just sit back now because, you know, that's how it is. No. The first thing David does is to seek God's will in this situation. Okay, God, what do you want me to do? What should we be doing now? He calls over uh, the priest, Abathar, and asks him for the ephod. Uh, That's a garment, that's a tunic. The priest in Israel would have worn. Um, it's got lots of jewellery on it. And in some way, we don't quite understand, it allowed uh, the Israelites of this time to ask God for guidance. And he says, shall I pursue these raiders? We don't quite understand how God answers, but God answers clearly. Uh, and he receives that answer straight away. Not only answer to the question, but more. God says, Go after the raiders, you will catch them, and yes, you will be victorious. You will rescue them. David has started to regain God's perspective. He's started to regain a perspective of how God is looking at this situation, not how David is looking at the situation. David is just in despair, and God is saying, No, don't be in despair, persevere. Yes, you may have been really dumb to get yourself into this situation. But persevere. David starts to hear about what God's perspective on this situation is. And that then ignites his passion. It ignites David's passion. It ignites his righteous anger. He got motivated. His thankfulness returns. His hunger returns. His his passion to do something. His passion to move ahead. His passion to lift himself up out of this pit of despair. However you want to express that. David got his mojo on. When we see the way, when we see things the way God wants us to see things, Our passion gets ignited again. David is going to get this done. He's going to round up his grumbling men. He says, come on, lads, let's go. And then like fireworks last night at Stephen Rachel's, bang, they're off. Stand well back because David is now in action. He's off, he's moving. It's not a wild action, it's got control, it's got purpose, it's got direction. 
and he's moving like a freight train. Look out the Amalekites because here comes someone who's been chosen by God, who's coming with God's perspective, with passion, and he's ready to take action. And you can see the results right there. Can I suggest to you that that is a pattern that we see in God's people, a pattern that God wants to see in his people? All of us, sooner or later, will find ourselves in a situation which emotionally feels like this. Despair, misery, the depths, whatever we want to call it. It could have come about for many reasons, perhaps because of something we've done, perhaps because of something somebody else done, because of life, perhaps because of the stage of life we're in. Yes, perhaps even because of the actions of God. If that's what it took to get our attention. Whatever it may be, in that situation, God wants us to turn to him. To rely on him. To be honest with you, I'm not sure who else you can rely on in a situation like that. But he wants us to experience his strengthening. By, by that, that's a, well, you know, that's a combination of a whole host of things. A combination of love, compassion, encouragement, Building up reassurance. He wants us to, be, to turn to him to be strengthened. But he also wants us to turn to him to seek his perspective. Okay, God, how do you see the situation that I'm in? I feel, I feel wretched. I feel broken. I feel like a failure. I feel like a bad person. I feel angry. Whatever emotions there are there. I don't understand what's happening, God, but you do. Let me have your perspective. Help me to see it. That would be a great prayer for someone in a situation like that. And it may take some time to get that perspective. We can't expect it to happen as it did for David straight away. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. But once armed with it, God wants our passion to be ignited our passion for him to be renewed our love for his people to be built up our compassion for the hurting he wants us to have he wants us to have a godly zeal and then to take that into action to do the work that god has set out for us from the beginning of time action fueled by that perspective fueled by that passion not in order to buy his approval not in order to get God points or anything like that, but out of thankfulness, out of thankfulness of what he's done, of who he is. And Jesus, the Son of God, was the ultimate model of this. Certainly he was a man who had a difficult life. He willingly left behind the glory of heaven the glory that was rightfully his as the prince of heaven and Jesus comes to earth for about 33 years and lived a life that was filled with temptation and trial. He lived a perfect life, but it wasn't easy. And despite being the perfect son of God, despite having been without sin, despite having fulfilled God's will perfectly towards the end of that life, Jesus finds himself in a position of ultimate despair. On the night before he's executed, he was in a place called Gethsemane near Jerusalem. 
And he was so distressed that the, about, uh, the knowledge of what would happen the next day that he actually sweated blood. This is a medical thing. It is actually possible, although very rare. Because the Prince of Heaven, the eternal Son of God, who's come into the creation that he had helped to create, is now faced with dying in agony for that same creation. Jesus was faced with receiving the punishment for the sins of his people. A punishment would involve his first ever separation from God, his Father. Although it is hard for us to understand just how deep his despair must have been, I firmly believe that there was never a deeper despair than this. Why? Because as the perfect Son of God, with knowledge of what the Father knew, Jesus had always known and understood the staggering price he was going to have to pay on the next day. Just how painful taking the sins of his people was going to be. Just how devastating that separation in the perfect relationship between him and his father was going to be. Just how much physical pain he was going to be in. Just how many people, despite all of his wonderful teaching and preaching, would ridicule him what the torture would be like, what the betrayal he would have to endure. And yet, even in that despair, even in that deeper despair than David experienced, far deeper than we would experience, Jesus turns to the Lord, his God. He turns to him for perspective. He prays, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. What happens then? We read it in the verse afterwards. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened Jesus. Does that sound familiar? Jesus was strengthened at that point. Even Jesus needed to be strengthened by the Lord, his God. Strengthened with perspective. That perspective is renewed. And that gives Jesus, uh, renews his passion and the drive to go out and do next day what he had to do for us, to save us from our self-centeredness, from our rebellion against our sin against God, to die and to be raised to life. The ultimate action, the ultimate action that is meant to give us God's perspective, the ultimate action that is meant to give us passion, the ultimate action that is meant to, out of thankfulness, drive us to action. And God the Father then gives to Jesus those who he has saved to bind together into this thing called the church. One body of which he is the head to steward as he sees fit. And back in our story, David also receives, as a result of his actions, something that God wants him to steward. Let's continue with the account from the story. David and his 600 men are going to have to catch up with the raiding party. Uh, these hardened fighters, they're moving so fast, a third of them get left behind. The other 400 press on. And they overtake the Amalekites and battle commences and David is victorious. All the families are rescued unharmed and he retrieves 
all the plunder. And that's kind of what the rest of the chapter is about here. What happens with the plunder, the, the herds and the flocks, the cattle, the camels, donkeys, whatever else. And maybe a certain amount of loose change, we don't know. Uh, that's been taken from Ziklag and some other places as well. What's David's response? Is David's response, what a great guy I am. Look at what I've achieved. I've rescued my wives and these are the families. I've conquered my enemies. I've won back the respect of my men. What a guy. Right? Ace Rimmer, what a guy. Uh, I'll take my plunder and celebrate. Or I'll take the plunder and I'll put it in my storehouses. Might have to build some more in Ziklag, whatever. Uh, The 400 men who did the fighting certainly have got that kind of idea. They want to keep the plunder to themselves? No. That is not how David responds. David applies great wisdom. Verse 23, he makes it clear. This has come about because of the Lord. It is the Lord God who has delivered this victory for them. It's only through the favor of God that they have won. David says God has protected and delivered him and his men against these raiders. So what David does is he uses great justice and great charity as he's distributing what's been gained. So whereas the Amalekites are only concerned with parting away what they'd gained, David uses again God's perspective, the fact that this is God's victory, to give him wisdom as to what he does. And so he spots that it's only fair that equal shares should be given to all 600 of the men, whether they fought in the battle or not. He makes a good case for it. He makes it clear this is out of gratitude to God, out of a sense of justice to men. Having done that, there's still more plunder left over, uh, which, is, which is good news. And so David also is wise enough to realize that he can give some to the leaders who've supported him when he was being chased around Israel by Saul. When Israel was chasing, uh, when Saul was chasing David through the wilderness, Saul would hide out in different places. And so David, out of uh, thankfulness, is going to send them some of the the plunder, also making it clear that that comes, uh, that the credit belongs to the Lord. And not only is he thanking his friends for their support, but he's also showing he's still on their side, showing them that him and his men are still a military force to be reckoned with. You know, we've had this big victory, guys. Here's the money. Um, That he's still generous as a potential ruler. That the Spirit of God is still with David because he's had this big victory. Uh, And hoping to secure their support for when David returns to claim the throne of Israel. Um. But he's only doing that out of his perspective. His perspective that is God's perspective. When we talked about the Psalms earlier, when we read the Psalms, you can read between the lines and hear this experience over again. How often David will write something about being in despair or being in the pit, Psalm 40. Um, These events now are some of the last events before David becomes the king of Judah and then subsequently of all of Israel. There are other times of trouble and despair to come in his life. I want to suggest to you that he's going to draw on these lessons, that he's going to lean on what he has learned here, that he will seek the perspective of God, that he will regain through the strength God gives him his passion and that he will take action. 
I said I don't often quote hymns earlier on. I also don't often go to personal experience very much. Um, it's not always helpful. Um, but I'm going to make an exception today. Uh, when I've been reading this passage and preparing it, just the same stuff was going through my head over and over again. Partly it's the time of year. At this time of year, about nine years ago, uh, both my mum and my dad died about three weeks apart. Um, to say that was a traumatic time would be a vast understatement. Uh, we were still living overseas, and so we were travelling backwards and forwards a lot during that autumn season. My dad's illness was very sudden and unexpected. My mum had been declining steadily for a number of years, and so that was less of a surprise, although certainly no less, less painful. However, however, God strengthened both Denise and I in that time. And I think it is fair to say that we gained a very clear perspective from our Heavenly Father. Uh, this was captured for me in my mum's burial. Um, I don't know if you know the area, but my mum is buried in the Loxley Valley on the west side of Sheffield. And in the Loxley Valley, there are high hills on both sides. And as I was standing there, I lifted my eyes up to the hill on the edge of the valley. And then I heard the minister read from Psalm 121. I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And I felt strengthened. I felt that I understood, at least in part, God's perspective in this situation. My mum and dad, as Christians, were now face to face with their heaven, with their saviour Jesus in heaven, who had suffered and died for them. Yes, I was still mourning. Yes, I was still grieving. But I felt comforted. I felt strengthened. I felt my passion for the truth, for the gospel being renewed. I trust and I hope that that sort of energized me into action over the weeks and months ahead. I think it did. Many of you, all of you, probably at some stage, have already faced similar rock-bottom experiences and and sadly, we will have more to come. Some of you have not yet experienced perhaps what David did. I know that some of you are still going through that experience right now and processing and fighting. I trust and I pray that we can learn from David's experience here. I pray that we would all be seeking strength from God, that we would all be seeking his perspective that would renew our passion and out of thankfulness that that would be driving zealous actions for us to do on behalf of Jesus. Not because we have to, but because we are thankful. I trust and I pray that that will be your experience, perhaps today, perhaps in the weeks and months ahead. Let's pray together.